0: Thank you. Appreciate that reminder. That's going to be important. Dr. Fish used to say what we need in this day are not human mechanics, but divine dynamics. And you access that by, the, uh, by prayer. And um, God blesses us in that. Let me invite your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is our last uh, chapter in uh, in really last study in books of the New Testament that have been neglected, Second Peter chapter 3. Do you remember where you were on September the 11th, uh, 2001? I was standing in uh, uh, our home, I was getting ready, and the news was on, and there was uh, some concern that a plane had Flown into one of the World Trade Towers, and about that time, the second one flew in, and I knew something was wrong. At the time, I was pastoring near Fort Benning, Georgia. I was in Alabama, just across the river, pastoring at Ladonia Baptist Church, and in my church were a good number of Ranger families. That was September the 11th. September 12th, the next day, several of them shipped out, and they were gone. They were called in, and they had to call their wives and say, "Uh, I don't know when I'll be back, but we're leaving. And that's all they could ever say when they were deployed uh, as uh, rangers. We hoped and prayed, we cried, we wept, and pleaded that God would protect them and look after them. Um, It wasn't long after that, just a couple of days, we got a call from the chaplain uh, at Fort Benning, the head chaplain or the chaplain's office at least, Uh, enlisting us pastors in the area to do death notices to families related to Fort Benning. And they anticipated so many of them that all the pastors in the Chattahoochee Valley area might be called upon to deliver death notices. That was stunning. That was striking. It was sobering. I don't know if I have had a more sobering moment in my life besides that. The good news is all of our young men from our church came home and I didn't have to make one death notice at all. And I bless the Lord for that and thank God for it. But on that day, on that day, there is a doctrine in the scripture that became very clear in focus. In fact, there were probably several on September the 11th that became very clear and profound. But the one that impressed me the most happened to be the doctrine of depravity. For nearly a century, Americans have scoffed at that doctrine of depravity. And they poured jet fuel on it in the 70s with the self-esteem movement. And that is everyone's good. You've got goodness in you, which because of the image of God is large part true. But what they have discounted is the depravity, the wickedness, and the sinful of men, women, boys, and girls around the world. On September the 11th, that doctrine was proven true in so many ways. And the, um, I, I, I didn't hear many people scoffing at it in, uh, in that time. Well, it's been almost two decades since then. There's some other doctrines that are scoffed at. In fact, Second Peter chapter 3 addresses one of them, and that happens to be the doctrine of the day of the Lord or the day of judgment when God comes back in vengeance, fury, and wrath to the earth and judges it in preparation for establishing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Will Rogers said, everyone is ignorant just about different things. And how true that is. And that's going to be exposed in this passage. I'm stunned by scoffing at the faith. You know, it's interesting that some would. What they don't realize is that the Christian faith is not a recent invention. Uh, just about of all of our modern research, is recent. What predates it is Christian theology. Christian theology is the oldest of the sciences. It's the queen of the sciences. And what so many scoffers really don't realize is that, number one, there really are not any new objections to the Christian faith. Number two, the ones that are, uh, or the, the the objections that do exist out there, we've been dealing with for 2,000 years swatting them away and moving on. And uh, I have told uh, crowds before in evangelistic crusades that uh, you may object to people in your family believing the Bible and trusting the Lord, but when you die, they are probably going to smuggle a preacher into the service. He's going to say a few words and go to the graveside, read the Bible and pray, because funeral services are not for the dead but for the living. And your grandmother's probably going to insist that one be there, at least her pastor. And they're going to put you in the ground and they're going to go back to the fellowship hall and have p- fried chicken and potato salad and they're going to read their Bible and pray that night. Is precisely what's going to happen. Look, we may object to the Word of God, but God uh, is still going to stand by His Word. His Word will stand forever and forever and forever. And, and that's what... Um, that's what's taken place through the centuries. Voltaire, the French, um, the French atheist or agnostic, was really a rather uh, vociferous opponent to the Christian faith, and he um, declared that in a hundred years, there would be no Bibles or no Christianity across France. After his death, within 50 years, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and started purchasing Bibles, or excuse me, printing Bibles out of his house. One of the most delicious ironies of Christian history. And there's some that say they actually used his own printing press to do it, uh, is, is the case. Well, there, history's full of a lot of those ironies. And Peter's addressing some of the same problems in Second Peter chapter 3 when it comes to those who scoff at the idea that there is a God who will return in fury and judgment and initiate a cataclysmic event in the earth to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The temptation that we have, however, when those when we might be around some uh, that scoff at the faith is to grow weak. Uh, it may be to fall back. It may be to be led away in error. It may be to be overly impressed with the scoffer. It may be to be that. And Peter addresses that in this particular text, and he says, you do not have to grow weak or fail or be led away in error if you will remember some things about God. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So there's a reminder. There was in the first epistle, and there is now in the second epistle that Peter is writing. Reminders. And then he says in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words. So remember, reminder, mindful. And then verse 3, knowing this. And so there's some mental activity in which we need to engage, mental discipline in which we need to engage in order to be strong and not to fall Uh, into uh, weakness, not to fail, not to lose our steadfastness, not to be drawn away in error according to the terms of the text. If you'll remember some things, you can be strong in a scoffing day. Well, how can I do that? Well, first, remember God's foreknowledge. Verses one through three, look carefully at, at the terms here. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both Of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, there are a couple of things that he does here that are just absolutely remarkable that I believe will give you an awful lot of strength. One, he reaches back centuries to the ancient Hebrew prophets. He goes back uh, anywhere uh, anywhere from 7 to 8 to 9 centuries to the Hebrew prophets. He could go all the way back to Enoch, who was a prophet. So he reaches back to their words. In a day of scoffing, he reaches back to the ancient prophets. And then he goes back, not a few centuries, but a few decades to the apostles' of Christ, maybe as recently as a few years before him. So he takes the words of the prophets, and he takes the words of the apostles, lifts them up, compiles them, and places them into the contemporary situation. In other words, when it comes to God, when it comes to God and a difficult day to live the faith, you've got to understand there is a constancy about God. It is a constancy reflected in the prophets, in the apostles, that is applicable to this very day. What what in the world do I mean? I mean the God who spoke to the people of Israel and Judah and and the God who spoke through the apostles in the ancient world is the God who's applicable and relevant today. Whenever we look... For strength in a day of scoffing, we look to God through the words of prophets and apostles. It's what we do. So you can anticipate when the day gets difficult, God isn't going to change on you. God is going to stay the same. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God God doesn't change? God will never change his beliefs, and so you arrive up to heaven on judgment day, and he's changed the whole plan of salvation and forgot to tell you. That's not happening, and, and, and uh, he doesn't change his values. He doesn't change the way the world works. There's a natural law that, in which people thrive, in which they do well. Even those who don't know God, if they will inadvertently obey the law in their heart, according to Romans 2, can live a prosperous life if they'll walk in that wisdom. You see, God isn't going to change any of that, and so you can count on the God of the prophets and apostles to be the God who's relevant and timely now. You've got it, just like they did. So that's the first thing he does. But there's another thing that takes place in this text that's uh, strengthening in so many ways. And... That is, the scoffers need to know that God predicted the scoffers are coming. He's not caught up short. He's not a bit surprised. He knew that scoffing and difficulty would come. Challenges to the Christian faith. And by the way, you don't need to be surprised when people scoff at the faith. You need to be surprised when they don't. You know, what surprises me is not that people do that. What surprises me is not people being as bad as they are. I'm surprised they're not worse. And frankly, I'm pretty grateful. That is a measure of the grace of God. Because God knows they're coming. He's warned us. He's alerted us. And we know. And so what the Lord has done to the demonic kingdom is that he has removed the element of surprise. And you can make it through. So remember God's foreknowledge, but then second, remember God's history. Look at verses 5 through 7. For, um, and and look, look at their complaint in verse 4, and uh, to put it in context. They're saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Uh, What what they're saying in verse 4 is nothing cataclysmic has ever happened. You're exaggerating. I mean, it's really exaggerated to believe in anything apocalyptic. There's no way. Everything has just continued since it did from the beginning of the world. And by stating that, they're overlooking a couple of things, Peter says. Number one, what do you do about the cataclysmic event of creation? It wasn't negative in a cataclysmic way. It was very positive and very constructive. But what do you do about that? There is the creation of the heavens and the earth. But there's a second event here. And it's rather remarkable what do you do about the flood? I'd say that was rather cataclysmic. In fact, all the cultures of the earth I know anything about that have uh, done uh, that, that have paid careful attention to their ancient stories, they all have a flood story. What well, what what do you do about the flood? So, if there's no category in other words, the statement "nothing ever cataclysmic happens" is simply. Not true. And this becomes a preview of verse number 7, where he says this. But the heavens and the earth, future, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's emphatic here and repetitive in this text happens to be the word. God in his word spoke creation into existence with just a word ordered the flood, And with a word can order the cataclysmic, apocalyptic event of the return of the Lord. With just a word. God can intervene with merely a word. And that's what he'll do. So remember God's history. There's a third thing to remember. Remember God's mercy. Now look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. In other words, God can get out of one day what the rest of us get in a thousand years. God can get out of one day what it takes a thousand of us, to what it takes us to produce in a thousand years. One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Okay, so the Hebrew prophets prophesied, 3,000 years ago. Jesus prophesied 2,000 years ago. Well, don't get impatient. That was just two or three days ago. In the mind and the sight of God, it was two or three days ago. How God measures time, what God is able to do, and in his processes of thinking. And by the way, can I encourage you as an aside, some of you are missing some loved ones that have gone on to heaven. Be patient. Hold on. It's just been a few minutes. It's just been a few minutes. Hold on. And in a few minutes, you'll see him again. Hold on. So he's saying here, um, let's look at God's way of timing. It's very merciful. But then, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, Not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So he's got merciful timing, but he also has merciful patience. Remarkable patience. Let me ask you a question. Let's say God brought the day of the Lord tonight and just ended it all. Where would most of the people we know be at one in the morning? Where would more, most of northeast Georgia be? Where would most of Georgia, where would most of the world be? Folks, God is marvelously, unbelievably merciful. He is delaying the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord because he simply wants to give people time to be saved. God is more interested in a day of salvation than he is a day of judgment. And that's how he views your friends. That's how he views lost family members. That's how he views all the lost strangers. That's how he views neighbors as well. He is more interested in salvation than judgment, mercy than condemnation. So he's willing to delay He's willing to delay the full implementation of the kingdom of God to give them time to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, there's a fourth thing to remember. And that happens to be in a day of scoffing, God has some expectations. Remember God's expectations. And there, there are three expectations that are found here in verses 11 through uh, 18. Verse 11. Um, verse 11 is very similar to verse 14. Verse 14 repeats the ideas of verse 11, so you have some bookends here. Okay, uh, Therefore, v- verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Okay? Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And so in verse 11, uh, you've got their behavior addressed. Verse 14, their behavior is addressed. In verse 11, it's addressed in terms of holy conduct and godliness. And similarly, in verse 14, without spot and blameless. And so you have some bookends here in the text. In between this call to a godly life, you've got this in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now look at this. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. (laughs) This is such good news. Oh, this is so encouraging. And it explains why there's a whole book of Revelation. And that is, there is coming a day when God is going to eliminate everything that is shameful and degrading It's going to be gone never to appear again. Never again will the Christian cause in the name of Jesus take three steps forward and two steps back. It will always be onward, upward, forward for might, for glory, for conquest, for victory, all the way through. And what God will do in that day is that God is going to completely eliminate all evil. And this is what the text is saying. God's going to eliminate all evil, so now let us eliminate all evil. Let's eliminate now what God will eliminate later. And in that way, we end up becoming a preview of that great day. We become the persuasive element of the Christian faith. We're we're telling them of a great day that's coming. We're telling of a new heavens and new earth, so let's be new creatures. We're telling of a day of pure delight. Let's be a people of pure delight. There's coming a day when there's, when there's, no, more, uh, when there's no more wickedness, so it, it's eliminated from our lives. In other words, we become a people who demonstrate now what God promises later. That's what can happen in, the, in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is here an expectation, very reasonable by the way, of a godly life. And then there's a second thing here in verses 15 and 16, and that is the expectation of a going life. A going life like the Apostle Paul. He says uh, in verse number uh, 15, Consider that the long suffering or the patience of the Lord is salvation. And that's what he said back in verse 8. Uh, God's patience means more and more are saved and come to Christ. That number keeps building and it burgeons and it grows. There's about uh, anywhere from four to 500 baptisms daily in Southern Baptist churches across America. Not like it used to be, but uh, it's better than some. In, in, in the world outside the United States, it's uh, several times more than that. So every day God waits to bring the kingdom. There are more and more that are saved. That's what his patience means, and this is precisely what Paul was writing about. Paul, Paul continually, constantly focused on the doctrine of salvation. And, and look, this is kind of interesting here. A little biography of Paul. He said, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So Peter's writing to this church, but Paul wrote to him as well. And guess what Paul wrote about? Paul wrote about salvation. And then, look what else he did. He wrote to this church about salvation, as in verse 16, as also in all of his epistles. The apostle Paul then was someone that was on fire for the salvation experience of the world. He gave himself to that. Now, we think Paul was uh, incredibly intelligent, and he was. His uh, letters are very structured, organized, and very disciplined in how he makes a point. It's remarkable to study him as an author and uh, to look at his literature and rhetoric and all that. Uh, there, there are some who, thought, uh, uh, who, who think that he would fit very well in a divinity school or a seminary. Or the religion faculty of a school someplace. I know a few that could use him, quite frankly. But um, truth is, is, uh, they think that he would do uh, rather well there. And that's true. But that's not what Paul was. Paul was not that. Paul was a pastor, evangelist, missionary, church planner. Or to use one man's terms, Paul was not up in the balcony watching life on the road amongst the people in a detached, pleasant position. It's not where he was. Paul wasn't in the balcony. Paul was on the road. And what came out of that man's soul, filled with the Spirit of God, with the call of God upon his life, was constant focus on the doctrine of salvation because God was good and was willing to save and be patient with people till they got saved. He had a going life. And it was so going, Peter hears talking about it and can't get past it. Now, there's a lot to say about this, but let me move to the third expectation. A godly life, a going life, which is why we do friend day, by the way, and then a growing life. Uh, Here, Peter says, you don't have to be a failure. You can be victorious. Verse 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, see, there's value in knowing this beforehand, removing the element of surprise. Beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. You know why he says that? Because we can fall from our steadfastness. Cannot tell you the number of preachers I've known in their 60s and 70s who fell? Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Being led away with the error of the wicked. Do you know why he warns about being led away by the error of the wicked? Because we can be led away by the error of the wicked. This is relevant. And here's the antidote. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ so the, the way to avoid uh, falling from steadfastness being led by uh away by error is to grow there's an antidote here listen to me real carefully sweet people there is no static position in the Christian faith there is no sameness we're moving forward or we're moving backward you might be able to stay the same for 10 minutes But quite frankly, if we do not make diligent effort to grow, we will begin to slide back. And hence the term backsliding. We've got to be extremely careful. So we grow. We're diligent to add to our faith, which was chapter 1, if you'll remember. We constantly add to our growth, especially in two areas. One is the grace, and the other is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grace. Grow in grace I used to think that growth meant that I was eliminating my sinful nature step by step and once I did that I would never have to do it again That's what I thought growth was. I I, I never had the hope that I would completely eliminate it but I could eliminate it piece by piece so there's almost none of it when I die. Do you know the Bible doesn't say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. Growth is not piece by piece eliminating the sinful nature. Growth, when it's used in the scripture, is growth in grace. Do you know what that means? That means growth in dependence upon God because you can't eliminate it. So you grow in your dependence and trust in God, leaning on Him. And I've got to tell you. My soul, every day that goes by and every year that passes in my life, I've got to be real honest with you. I feel more of a desperation to seek God now than I ever have in my entire life. I'm not the best at it. I'm not trying to claim that. I'm just telling you, folks, I seek him. I wish I sought him because I loved him, and I do love him. Um But I wish that was the only reason I sought him. I I have to be honest with you. I seek him because I need him more now than I ever have. I've got to have grace. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, That's knowledge of Jesus. Now, I want to make a point here, and I don't want to go too far with this, and I don't want you to become alarmed. It says grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, not the knowledge of Scripture. Now, should we grow in the knowledge of Scripture? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should. Psalms 119 makes it very clear. Lots of New Testament passages. So grow in the knowledge of Scripture. Okay? But that's not what this says. This says grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Know Him. I'm going to tell you what that means. I'm going to tell you how to get it. Okay? What does that mean? I know about our governor, Brian Kemp. I know to whom he's married. I know he's got three daughters. I knew he ran a construction company in Athens. I knew he was Secretary of State. But I don't know him like his wife knows him, like his friends know him, like some of you know him. I don't have a personal knowledge of Brian Kemp. That's what we're talking about here with Jesus. We have got to get beyond the point of merely knowing about Jesus to where we know Him. And can I tell you the glad news? It's possible. You can know Him. Here's how. Here's how. Use the Bible. Use prayer. Yes. Those are extremely important. But those have got to, if they're going to be effective, those have got to be preceded by this one thing. You come before Him completely open. And you say to him when you start, your Bible reading time and your prayer time, if you want that to be more than just black ink on paper and a few words that are mouth in an upward direction, here's what you do. You say, dear Lord, I'm coming. I desperately need you. And before you tell me what to do, the answer is yes. Everything is yes. Yes. I yield it all. The consequences, they don't matter to me. If you rearrange my schedule today, that's none of my business. The answer is yes. I have one thing to do today, and that is to tell you yes. Every step of the way, I belong to you. I'm redeemed, which means I'm your property. The answer, dear God, is yes. You open yourself to him that way. And Psalms 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, those who are amazed by him. You get yourself into that position and heaven is going to pour out upon you new glories, new majesties, new insight, new direction, new power. And you'll be so thrilled with Jesus Christ, your salvation experience, your walk with him. It's going to be nearly impossible to be silent about him. That's what he'll do for you. And Father, we want to thank you for the good news of this word. Oh, help us to deal with this and be strong in a scoffing day. Father, I I thank you that your word says, He who wins souls.